today we are reading Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, through Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and then there was morning, and the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Uh, thank you, Nathan, for stepping up and doing that for us today, doing the announcements and the welcome. And uh, let me just again say welcome. My name is Steve. I'm the associate pastor here for this community, and I am excited about this series that we're in here in the book of Genesis and what the text is going to say to us this morning. So let's pause here for a moment and pray, and then we'll go ahead and jump right in. So pray with me. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this community of people who come together to try to figure out what it looks like to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly together. Thank you for the opportunity to sing and to worship. And now for the time and space to hear from your word. We pray that you would make this fresh for us. You would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear what you want us to take and learn and apply from this passage in Genesis. Help us to know in a new and in a deeper way what it means to be created in your image this morning. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, how many of you are familiar with the idea, the concept, the phenomenon of the Sunday night blues? Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the Sunday night blues. All right, the Sunday night blues is that thing that happens to you on Sunday night when your mind and your body begins to click back into work mode. And there's kind of a couple things that happen. One is like you start to think about what's in your email box or what's coming up in the week and you start to kind of go into that like work task mode. And at the same time, you begin to sort of lament the end of the weekend, okay? Now, how many of you know what I'm talking about, the Sunday night blues? Okay, here we go. Apparently, many of us more and more are experiencing this, or I mean, whatever that might be for you, if you're more of a Tuesday through Saturday person, maybe it's the Monday night blues, but whatever that is, studies are showing over and over again that more and more people are very unhappy at work. There was a Gallup study a couple of years ago that looked at workers in 142 countries, okay? It's a very comprehensive study, and they discovered that there are twice as many workers who are dissatisfied in their work than satisfied. 
Okay, dissatisfied workers outnumber satisfied two to one. Even more interesting to me in this article, this was even just kind of sort of a, a footnote question, but 13% of the workers polled said they were fully engaged by their work. It brought them life. They showed up each morning excited to be there, which means that 87% of workers are what the article described as actively disengaged, which is a great phrase. Like, think about that for a minute. Actively disengaged from their work. Susan Adams, a writer for Forbes, was reflecting on some of this data from this Gallup poll, and she talked about active disengagement this way. Work is more often a source of frustration than one of fulfillment for nearly 90% of the world's workers. Think about that for a minute. In short, they're checked out. They sleepwalk through their days, putting little energy into their work. And this shows up in study after study after study. It's clear that there is a deep struggle in our hearts when it comes to work. And as a result, we end up with all these different sort of weird ideas about what work is for, right? For some of us, it's just a necessary evil. Okay, it's this thing that we do to pay our bills and to survive. Others of us, we work so that we can get on with the things that we really like to do, right? We work so we can play. Or maybe the other end of the spectrum, work becomes this all-consuming thing. We are our jobs. Work gives us a high, a hit of a kind. Creates worth and status for us. And then when we don't work, when we take a break, a day off, when we go on vacation, or if we lose our jobs, we freak out. Because who am I without work? So wherever you might be on that spectrum, workaholic or work avoider, whatever that might look like, for many of us, work dominates our life and how we think about our life and how we feel about our life. So the question is, what is up with that? <laughs> Why is this? Is this the way that it was supposed to be? So let's begin answering that by reviewing where we've been. We started our series here in Genesis last Sunday, so we only have one week to review, which is kind of nice. But so far, we've seen this. Genesis, according to most scholars, was written by Moses, and the book was likely written around the time that the people of Israel, God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are waiting to enter into the land that God had promised them. So they go through this amazing rescue from slavery in Egypt, and then they spend this time sort of in between slavery and their promised home. And this is the context for this book. And Genesis, along with the four books that come after it, what we now call the Pentateuch, our first five books of the Bible, they help tell one big story. A story for a group of people who had been slaves for 400 years, a story for a group of people who needed answers to the big questions, who are we? And what are we doing here? Last week, we spent some time in those first five and a half days of creation, Genesis chapter one, where we saw that the author utilizes some themes that were familiar to the ancient Near Eastern mindset, and in particular, this idea of chaos. Is the world fundamentally a chaotic place? And we saw that the account of creation that God gives to Moses and subsequently to Israel and to us is very, very different from some of these other stories that were common in the ancient Near Eastern mind. We saw that Yahweh, as he reveals himself to his people, is powerful. He creates simply by speaking. 
We saw that Yahweh is deliberate and intentional in his creation. He brings order out of the chaos. And we saw that he creates this orderly, functional home that he can dwell in relationship with his creation, and he calls this home good. And then finally, we said this goodness points to the goodness of Yahweh himself, Moses. Again, God speaking through Moses wants Israel, wants us to know we can trust Yahweh because what he has created is good. It's a reflection of his goodness. Now, I am the associate pastor here, so I don't often get an opportunity to do something like this. So this is just going to be a short parenthetical soapbox moment, okay? (laughs) Bear with me for a second. Last week, we also talked a little bit about how in Genesis chapter 1, a lot of times as modern 21st century people, we bring our modern 21st century questions to the text. We ask scientific questions. And we talked a little bit about how ancient Near Eastern people were asking different questions, and those are the questions that are actually being addressed by the text. Now, that being said, it is still really good to ask scientific questions and to engage with the world of science. And far too often, Christians have set up science as the bad guy, right, as the enemy. In fact, if you drive around Oakland right now, you may notice a very large billboard to that effect. If you haven't seen it yet, go drive around today. You'll see what I'm talking about. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. We do, I think, a great disservice to people by setting up science as the bad guy, as the enemy. And I did... Uh, college ministry for six, seven years, and I saw a lot of students wrestle with this very thing. Again, this is my soapbox moment here, just bear with me. Let me say this, science, the study of the world, how things work, was always going to be an important part of the human experience. Adam did science as he explored the world, as he got to know this creation that God had set him in. So let me say this, science itself is not the problem. It is not our enemy. Okay, a humanistic worldview, a materialistic worldview, a worldview that leaves no room for God, a rejection of God and his wisdom, that is the issue. That is the problem, not biology 101 or whatever thing we may get fired up about. Now, one more thing, and then I'll be done and we'll get back into where we're supposed to be this morning. It's okay for Christians to disagree about science, okay? People can love Jesus and have very different opinions about how old the earth is and all those other kinds of things that we debate and argue about. Let me say this, what you believe about science doesn't save you. In Acts, we read this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, okay? Jesus saves you. Science doesn't save you or having the correct view about science. It's not an issue of salvation. So, there you go. That's my moment. Let's give each other some grace on this. Let's stop freaking out about science. Let's work on things that are more important. Now, if you are interested in exploring this a little bit more, there's all kinds of resources out there. The one that I would highly recommend, a guy named John Walton, he's a professor at Wheaton College in Chicago, has done some incredible scholarship on the book of Genesis, on ancient Israel, on the ancient Near East, and in particular, he wrote a book called The Lost World of Genesis 1. And if you want to begin exploring what it looks like for faith and science to interact, I would suggest you begin there. All right, on to the text. Genesis 1, verse 26. I want to read a couple of things again to set us up for our conversation this morning. 
So verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, over all the creepers. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now skip 29 and 30. Those are two verses about how we should be vegetarians. And then look at verse 31. I'll just let that hang there. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, we need to talk about three things here in uh, this part of the text. We need to talk a little bit about the plurality that we see. There's all these weird pronouns being used. What's up with that? Then we need to talk about the image of God, what it means for us to be created in God's image. And then we'll say a few things about dominion and what it means to rule over creation. So let's start with plurality. The title for God that is used here in Genesis 1, all the way up until verse 3, where we end today, the title for God here is Elohim. Elohim is a sort of general Hebraic name referring to Yahweh. It's kind of like how we might just say God as opposed to Jesus or Father or Lord or some of the other more personal or official titles. Generic title for God, Elohim, is plural in form. Now, this does not mean that we should translate Elohim as gods, as in multiple gods or multiple beings, but it does point us towards a very fascinating, mysterious truth about God's nature. There is this plurality inherent in God's character. We see this in the English translation where it says things like, let us in our image. Again, this sort of unity and plurality in God's essential character. We see the same thing in reference to mankind here. When God says, let us make man, the word in the Hebrew is the word Adam. What does that sound like? Adam. Adam means the human. Again, a broad, generic, plural term. A literal reading here would be, let us make the humans in our image. So we shouldn't read, at least at this point in the text, a sort of personal, singular, or even gendered sense here in this creation of humans, until we get to verse 27 at least. This is figurative language describing the creation of human beings. And again, there's this sort of singular, plural tension going on in the text. Now, again, to say that creation is the act of a singular being who is also fundamentally plural, is mysterious. How does that work? We're not going to go through a whole doctrine of the Trinity this morning, but what we can say, at least at this point, with some certainty, is this. To fully understand God's nature and for his image to be fully expressed in humans, there needs to be a plurality. There needs to be a community. There needs to be male and female. Now, that's kind of the broad perspective. More specifically, every individual person, 
bears the image of God in some unique way. You have never met a human being who is not created in the image of God. Psalm 139, we read, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You reveal something unique about God. Something that no one else in the history of the world has been able to do. We'll say more about this in the coming weeks, but this is partly why community is so important and can be so beautiful, because we need everyone to help image God, to help represent God. Together, we all help reflect and bear God's image. So again, there's this interesting tension in the text between the individuality, the uniqueness, and then also this sort of plurality, this community. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the image of God. What does it mean that God created Adam's in his likeness? Again, very figurative language being used here in the text, but imagery that would have been familiar to Israel and to ancient Near Eastern people. Kings in this time would often set up images or likenesses of themselves all around their kingdom to remind people of who was in charge. It'd be like going on a road trip here in the U.S. and everywhere you go, there's a little Barack Obama statue reminding you who's president. Just keep that in mind during this election season. (laughs) So God is doing a similar thing here. He is setting up humans to be his representatives in this world that he has created. But again, there are some significant differences between what God does and this political practice of ancient kings. Humans are not statues. Humans are living, thinking beings with personalities. Some of us with more personality than others. And these humans, again, are not just sort of static representations of God. They are to be in a relationship with this king. And this king is not off in some distant land doing his thing. This king is present and real. This representation happens in a dynamic, living, relational, partnering way. Again, we are not statues. The word image in the Hebrew is the word teselem, and the Greek translation of teselem is icon. And you might say it this way, we are God's icons. What does that mean? Dr. Scott McKnight writes, to be an icon means, first of all, to be in union with God. Again, this unity, this communion. Second, it means to be in communion with other icons, the plurality of all humans representing God. And then third, It means to participate with God in his creating, his ruling, his speaking, his naming, his ordering, his variety, his beauty, his location, and his partnering. And this partnering brings us to talk about dominion, ruling. These are sort of intimidating words to our modern ears, but this is often what theologians call the creation mandate. What does it mean then to subdue, to have dominion over, to rule over creation. Before we get to kind of breaking down what that means, note first that this mandate comes from a blessing. It's preceded by a blessing. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and then he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and do all that stuff. So the blessing comes first. 
then the call to rule. Now, blessing, a very significant theme all through the book of Genesis. We'll see this again and again and again in our time in this book. But right here, it's very important to note the connection between dominion and ruling and this blessing because it's all grace. It's all a gift. It's not like God held some sort of contest to see, okay, which of these things that I created is going to end up being the most awesome? And then whoever won, he's like, okay, well, you get to rule. No, it was a gift. It was a blessing. It had nothing to do with anything that humans did to earn this kind of status. Now, speaking of status, there is a hierarchy that we see here in the created order of the world. And again, another word that we don't totally like hierarchy, but this is how God created it to be. There's God, and then there's humans, and then there's the rest of creation. And again, this is a couple weeks down the road, but we get into all kinds of trouble when we mess with that hierarchy. When we put ourselves at the top in place of God, or we begin to worship the creation as God, all different kinds of ways that we mess up that hierarchy, but it gets us into a lot of trouble. That being said, humans are to be this sort of in-between, okay, between God and the rest of creation. And so this ruling is less about exploitation and dominating and more about helping bring flourishing, helping to take care of it. Last week we talked about how creation is good, but it is not done, it's not finished, it's heading somewhere. There's a direction to the universe. And so for humans to fully inhabit the image of God and their specific role in this hierarchy, they need to rule, which again means to care for creation and to partner with God to help ensure that this creation flourishes. That's the idea of ruling, of having dominion. Another way of saying it is this. Essential to bearing the image of God is work. We were always designed and intended to work I think the best definition for work is based on what we see here in the text is this. Work is participating with God in the flourishing of the world. Work is participating with God in the flourishing of the world. Do you think of your work in that way? And it's important here to say that work doesn't equal job. Not all work comes with a paycheck. But all work, all good work, is participating in the flourishing of the world. There are retired people, there are people who are out of work or who are not working for whatever reason, who are contributing more to the flourishing of the world than people who are getting a paycheck from some company. You with me? Now, again, work was always how life was intended to be. Day-to-day life for the Adams that God created was not about eating peaches and taking naps in a garden. It was always going to involve work, tending the garden, picking the fruit, naming the animals. And if we use our imaginations here for a moment, there were houses to design and build. There were children to raise and educate. There were businesses and economies to create and sustain. There were discoveries to be made, art to be created, books to be written, stories to be told, iPhones to be invented. Some people think that that's like the pinnacle of creation, right? Like we finally made it. I don't know. I don't even have one, so what do I know? (laughs) The universe, though, was always 
going somewhere. And it was supposed to get there through a partnership between God and his image bearers, the Adams, the humans. This, Genesis is saying, is ultimately why God created, to work, to work together with his beloved human partners to bring flourishing to his good home. A lot of us see work as this thing that we just have to do, right? But work inherently, essentially is good. Work is a gift. It is a blessing. And as we move into those verses in chapter 2, we see that God himself works. So again, we were always meant to work. We were even meant to enjoy it. And yes, we do live in a post-fall, sinful, broken world. And as a result, work is far more frustrating than it was ever intended to be, but that doesn't mean that work is inherently bad. We were always intended to work. Now, the beginning of chapter two, just to drive all that home, verse one, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So again, God works, but then God rests. And God blesses, there's that word again, God blesses this rest. Now what does it mean that God rests? Does God go to Cancun and kick it on the beach with a fruity beverage for a while to check out? <laughs> No, that's not what it means. John Walton, who I referenced earlier, writes this. From the eighth day on, God can now disengage from the setup tasks and begin regular operations. God is ruling from his temple. This is the ongoing work of creation. He is in the business of sustaining his creation. So God continues to work. Okay, he doesn't completely check out. It's important, again, to remember the intended audience here. Israel has done what for the last 400 years? They've worked and they've worked and they've worked. They've made brick after brick after brick. They were enslaved, and the longer that they were enslaved, the greater the workload became. There were no breaks. There was no rest in the Egyptian empire. So for God to say, take a break, take a day off, this is radical stuff. And, you know, in some ways we, again, get all caught up in the six days of creation and how does that fit with evolution or whatever. But for the ancient Israelites, the most radical thing that God says in this entire first chapter of Genesis is rest. <laughs> Take a break. The gods of the ancient Near East were demanding and oftentimes the creation of humans in those stories was all about creating a workforce to meet their demands, but not so with Yahweh. He did not create slaves. He did not create robots. He created image bearers who work to reflect his work and who rest to reflect his rest. So God rests, but it is in many ways different from the kind of rest that he calls us to take. So how is our rest different from God's? Well, first, we rest because we need it. 
Okay, God rested, I think, to model it, to transition from the creating to the sustaining. But we are created. We are designed to rest. We need it. I read a fascinating book a couple years ago by a guy named Dan O'Reilly called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. He's a researcher at MIT, and he's looking at why do people lie, not from a theological perspective, but from a social and psychological perspective. And there's a whole chapter in this book on rest and on how when we are tired, we lie more. The title of the chapter is Why We Blow It More When We Are Tired. (laughs) Parents understand this, right? When there's sleep and rest in your house, obedience goes up. And when there is less sleep, obedience goes down. Am I right? (laughs) Our bodies are designed to rest, and we're at our best when we are well rested. Second, our rest is different from God's rest because we are not God. This is my deep thought for this Sunday. (laughs) John Walton again, we recognize his role as creator God by our observance of the Sabbath in which we consciously take our hands off the controls of our lives and recognize that he is in charge. Yes, we get to partner with God in the co-creation, the sustaining of this world that he has made, but we need to remember this is not an equal partnership. We are not in charge. We are not at the center. We do not hold all things together. I don't know about you, but that is actually really good news. And in a way, it's a foreshadowing, it's a hint towards the gospel. We can work all we can, but our work will not save us. There's nothing that we can do in our own power to save us. God has done the ultimate work for us through Jesus' death and his resurrection. Now, this truth that God is at the center, that God holds all things together, I think is a very freeing thing for us. It frees us from turning work into an idol. If we worship the creator, we don't need to worship our work. It's very easy, I think, here, particularly in the Bay Area, to turn work into an idol. When our lives become dominated by work, it may be that we actually worship a God named self or career, or pleasing the boss, or achievement, or whatever. You fill in the blank. So if you struggle with rest, with taking time off, you need to ask the question, what does that say about who I worship? We've tried to make rest a priority in our family. Amy and I both work, but we have done our best to take Mondays off And so from Sunday night to Monday night, as best we can, we don't work. We try not to check our email. We sort of unplug from our work connection. And then we try to do things together as a family that are fun and restful for us. And it's definitely something that our kids look forward to. Marina will ask me sometimes on Friday, is it Sabbath today? (laughs) Not yet. Almost. (laughs) We're almost there. Now, there is no right way to do this. There's no formula to Sabbathing, but you must rest. So do what you need to do to take a day off and then make it a tradition and make it fun and make it life-giving. Last Sunday, we learned 
about the priority of first mention. This idea in the study of scripture that what comes first, what gets first mention, helps frame and interpret what comes after it. And there is an amazing first word in the life of Jesus. In Mark chapter one, we read this. This is at the moment of Jesus' baptism. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Imagine how that experience impacted Jesus' work. Okay, his work didn't come from anxious striving. It didn't come from trying to prove himself to his father or anyone else. It did not come from fear of letting people down. His identity was deeply rooted in this first word. This comes, in each of the stories about Jesus, this comes before he does any ministry, before he heals, before he teaches, before he calls disciples, before he casts out demons, before he goes to the cross and lays his life down for the world, before any of that, this incredible first word, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That is the first word spoken over Jesus. We're going to do something a little bit different today as we transition into our closing time of communion and worship. So before we sing and before we take this meal that's laid out here before us, we are going to sit for five minutes in silence, a sort of Sabbath inside of the Sabbath. Okay, when this time is over, you'll know it's over because Jane and the band will begin leading us in worship again. And then during that time of singing, you can come to the front again for communion or prayer, all the sort of normal things that we do during this time. But during these five minutes, I would highly encourage, strongly encourage you to hold the silence, to stay where you are, to turn your phone off, to close your eyes, whatever you need to do, to let this serve as a symbolic moment of rest. So as we prepare for this, as we ready our hearts to take communion, I want us to sit with a couple of things. What if we worked from a different place? What if we let the good news of the gospel, that God is in control of his creation, inform our work? What if we were so rooted in the gospel declaration that we are loved, that we can enjoy the rest that God has provided for us? So I would encourage you now to close your eyes, to sit still, and as we get ready to enter this moment, let this be your meditation as we rest together. Allow God to speak these words over you. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. My beloved son my beloved daughters, with whom I am well pleased.